Tom Power, and this is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Hi, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for streaming or downloading or however you're getting this. I am so excited to talk about today's show. But first, before we get to it, I want to talk about last week's show. So last week, we put out episode one of our Toy Heart tribute to Tony Rice. I just want to say thank you. It's been very overwhelming, the comments and the emails and the DMs and all the messages we've been getting about this podcast and all the memories we've been getting of of Tony. So thank you so much for all your kindness. I know you've been sharing it around and that means the world to us. But there was one email in particular that we got today. What is it? Today is Thursday, January 28th. We got an email today from Ron Rice. Ron Rice is Tony Rice's brother, one of Tony Rice's brother. And he wrote to say, hey, thanks for the podcast. And of course, you know, that means the world because, you know, it's, it's the family. But then he goes on to say that he's attached in this email and he, he cleared it for us to play for you. A recording of Tony and Larry Rice performing Toy Heart, the Bill Monroe song that this podcast is named for. I just want to reiterate this. This has never been heard before. This is an unreleased, never-before-heard recording of Tony Rice. Here it is. This is Toy Heart. Darling, you toyed with a toy bar. 
go. How cool is that? That is Tony and Larry Rice performing Toy Heart by Bill Monroe. Never before heard. Thank you so much to Ron Rice for sending that along. That means the world. He says it's a home-style recording from the early 80s. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And, And thank you, Ron, for sending that along. Okay, moving on with the show. It is our honor to be paying tribute to the legendary Tony Rice. And as I mentioned, we're doing it through three parts. Last week's episode was... Folks who came up with Tony Rice, who were around as he was developing as a musician. Sam Bush, David Grisman, Jerry Douglas. This week we're going to be talking to people who played with Tony after he was already developed as a musician. Who toured with him, who recorded with him. We have Bela Fleck, Sharon Gilchrist, Peter Rowan, and Josh Williams. Starting with Bela Fleck, who once told me that he moved to the South because he heard Tony Rice was making albums without a banjo player. And he wanted to be Tony Rice's banjo player. That's what motivated him. Throughout their career, they made incredible records together, genre-defining albums, not to mention tours and jams that have become a thing of legend. But as with all of our conversations, Bela knows who Tony really was, and he has some pretty amazing stories about their time together. Bela Fleck joined us from his home in Nashville. Bela, thanks a lot for making the time. I remember last time we talked, we were talking so much about Tony Rice, you know, like so much about him and, and telling so many stories about him. I'm, you were the first person that crossed my mind when when I found out that he had passed. I'm, I'm so sorry for you. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I, I love the guy. You know, um, I don't know how close you could say we were. It was a lot of people had that funny feeling like I love him, but uh, he won't return my texts, you know, and. Uh, but I had some of the deepest musical experiences I've had with anybody with him and a lot of, uh, you know, um, hero worship on my end. Um, and he never let me down in that regard. What's the, what's the earliest memory you have of just knowing about Tony Rice? I think it was the new South record. Uh, the, 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 I think is it Oh one, two, four, uh, on rounder, I think maybe one, two, three, but, uh, yeah, that was the first record and I, and I dug it. And then I, of course he was everywhere. Um, at that time, so this would have been early 70s, maybe 73, 74, 75. When I was learning to play, he was, you know, the cat. Um, now, at first, I was more into the local, you know, fantastic musicians like Tony Trishka and Russ Barenberg and Andy Stapman, who were our local crazies, who were fantastic. Um, but as time went on, I started to hear there was really something about this sound that Tony was getting and, and the people he played with all seemed to, like his records had this amazing sound and drive. And they had this thing... Um, where every note felt like it was kind of chiseled in stone for some reason. Something about the authority that he played his timing with. And Crow would have that too sometimes. It was like there was so so much authority to the notes that it felt like it was meant to be. And um, yeah, I wanted to play with him. I really, I, it, was, it was a dream. Uh, then I got into, uh, I remember getting into Manzanita, you know, um, and really just being crazy about that record. And in fact, I moved to Kentucky partly to you know to be in that orbit of people like Tony and J.D. Crow and try to learn that southern timing um, that those guys seem to have that the northerners didn't play with I didn't think um, more of a straight a straight straight eighths kind of feel than a bouncy feel and um, and I wanted to be around the top cats in the scene and it seemed like Tony and Crow and Skaggs were and Jerry Douglas were those guys at that time now of course Sam Bush was always you know right up there and, and equal t- to those guys when he was, but, but I had access to him, you know, and he was friendly to me and I knew him, but Tony was gone. He had left, um, Lexington 
um, that band had split up and he had moved to, to, to California to play with Grisman. And so he moved on uh, and, he, and he was also very curious musically and he knew he was onto something and he was, he was growing this new guitar style sitting there in Lexington. And then I moved to Lexington and I was growing my banjo play, playing in that same town trying to figure out how to be the player I wanted to be. So I always thought about him a lot, listened to a lot of tapes of him playing. Uh, but he was very hard to find. He was, you know, I very, I, I, I don't, don't remember first meeting him. You don't remember like the first time you, you, you had a handshake or? No, you know, the first thing that he did with me, I had asked him to play on a record, which he said yes. Uh, my second record was called Natural Bridge, and I'd asked him and Grisman um, to play. And, and they had split up the, the DGQ at that point, the, the David Grisman Quintet, and I had asked impertinently if they would both play on my banjo record, this, you know, my second banjo record on Rounder. And they both said yes, but um, as it got closer and closer, Tony got more and more nervous. And I would talk to him on the phone occasionally, and he would say, like, hey, man, can't you get, like, another mandolin player? You know, and he wanted to do it, but he didn't want to play with David yet. It was just a little too early, and a little bit later on, they they worked their their things out. But he backed out on me on the night before the session when I was getting ready to fly to California, uh, and he didn't even call me. Uh, I got the call from the record label that he'd backed out, and we had to reschedule. And um, and Mark O'Connor jumped in and played guitar, and he was playing guitar with the, with the Grisman Quintet at that time. But, um, but when so when it feels like you're. You're dancing around him a lot. Like yeah. you're on the phone, you're knowing his records. Like it feels yeah. like it took a while for you guys to get in the oh, same. Yeah. So when we finally got together, um, Sam Bush, I, I was in Newgrass Revival at this point. Really? And so like it took that long? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, and um, so um, Sam got cancer uh, like around the, at the end of the, I think the first year I was in the band. And, um, and so uh, he was going to be out of, out of commission for a while. For a few months and you know hopefully it was going to be okay um so um i decided to and they were going to be doing these benefits in california for them like sam and, and grisman were going to get together and do it so i was like i'm in newgrass River. i'm going to go and they're not going to say no to me if i show up and say can i play so i got in touch i said hey i'm going to come and play and everyone was great okay all right now i get to play with tony and grisman finally at the at the great american music hall so I drive out, I'm going to drive out there and I think I should go do something with those guys. Like if I'm going to be there. And so I decided to make this duet album with various people. And um, it would be people, you know, like if I, if Tony would do it and Grisman would do it. And then I could do something with Mar with, with Mark O'Connor and I could do something with Daryl Anger and something with Mike Marshall. And then it, it opened up to like John Hartford, Hartford and Skaggs and all the, all my favorite people each did a duet with me. So anyway, I, I drove all the way from Nashville to, to to San Francisco in my little uh, Toyota Celica, and um, and parked there, and um, and Tony said, "Well, come stay with me." I was like, "Okay." So you never really met him before. You guys knew each I other think, a little bit. I don't think we'd met before. I have to really think about it. I, I don't think so. I think that was the first meeting, and uh, and uh, I'm in his house, and he's like a real quiet guy. He's not like super expansive. So we're sitting around. I'm sitting around his house. I'm like, hey, you want to play? And oh no, here listen to listen to this music, uh, and so he's putting on incredible jazz music through these these speakers that are just it's the best music ever had sounded to me in my life you know maybe even since it was these big monolithic speakers and he was putting on these old you know miles era beautifully recorded elvin jones type you know uh era um coltrane or whatever that kind of stuff but maybe more maybe, maybe it was dexter gordon it was some stuff i didn't know as well it was just really beautiful and um and he was showing me how he had his cassette deck. He had a cassette deck where 
um, the um, spools were exposed so you could edit cassette tape. Well, yes, because what what they would do is is they Grisman and uh, Tony and and uh, mostly those two guys uh, were really into editing takes. Just to tr- just to practice the idea of editing a, a record to figure out what he was going to do the, uh, on the real edit. Wow. So he could study and he could try it a bunch of times without screwing up the real the real recording, which was on beautiful one inch tape, um, recorded at Arch Street. You know all this, or he did all those records. Um, so there was that, and then finally, I think he practiced with me a little bit, and, and it was my tune, and I don't remember us jamming or anything. Uh, you know, that, and then um, and then I had the same, and, and then we met in the studio and did it, and it was you know I, we did I don't know five or six takes. It was awesome. And then I did the same thing with Grisman. He had me stay at his house. We worked on some stuff. We mostly just jammed in the studio and I got something together. And between those two guys, they, um, I mean, for one thing, they smoked the most ferocious weed I've ever. It was paralyzing stuff. And it was very dangerous for someone who wanted to play some, seriously wanted to play some music, especially recording it where it was going to be serious. And and then um, they also were into this coffee thing, uh, which makes me think about, you know, Tony, you know, dying making his coffee but um tony was very very picky about the coffee they had figured out exactly how many seconds to run the grinder on the beans um uh, before you before you uh put them in into the uh, and, and then they, they did pour overs they did um you know a drip coffee by the cup and it was uh unbelievably good and, this is very uh, california to me by the way like paralyzing weed and 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 you know chemically perfect coffee yeah this is what I imagine. Yeah. So I mean, uh, uh, the the coffee part stuck with me. I mean, I, I remember being paralyzed, you know, by just you know, the weed. I wasn't ready for anything like that. I do have a memory of being um, playing the Birchmere one year uh, with Tony and me, and was it? Is, is that that legendary? Because I have that the the legendary yeah. kind of Birchmere. Yeah. You, Tony, Sam, Stuart, Duncan. Yeah, it was uh, Stuart, and one time I think it was Allison. I'm correct. And but, Schatz, I think. Yeah, maybe I maybe I wasn't there for the Allison one, but uh, a couple of different times we went to do that. And and uh, and the night before we met at the Best Western, um, and we all were in the room to practice, and we all got high, and we just jammed out like n- n- no jam has ever happened before. Just some of us were sitting on the bed, some of us were leaning against the walls. You know, the, you think about how small a Best Western bedroom is with two beds in it. I think it was me and Chats's room. We were all just crammed in there in the spaces, and we were all high, and we we just went to the moon uh, together. I and I, I, Schatz used to always like throw a tape recorder on the bed and just hit record at a rehearsal. And I was, I keep asking him, do you have? Can you find that tape somewhere? And he doesn't. He doesn't think he taped it. But it was one of the most magical musical experiences that I've ever had. Of course, colored by the weed. Sometimes those kinds of things don't sound as good when you hear them back as they did while they were happening. But I think it was pretty spectacular because it was like we were one mind there. It was the one that got away, the jam that got away because yeah. it was just so much fun. Can, can you talk to me about making drive with, with Tony? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, the hard thing was getting any rehearsal done. I, I went to each guy separately who, who I could, who I could corral and get them to learn some of the tunes. And Tony came into town, I think the day before, I couldn't get him to rehearse. I finally, I got him to let me come over. I was begging him. You know, we always had this, this dance where I'm begging him, please, Tony, please, you know, 
uh, please, can we rehearse a little? And it's like, ah, man, we don't know. We'll do it on the floor. You know, I'm like, no, you know, you know, these, some of these tunes are hard. I just want you to have heard them before. You know, it's like, ah, okay. All right, come over. So I come over with, the, you know, and we, he doesn't, he never wants to get his guitar out, you know, but uh, when he does, it's magical, you know, it's unbelievable. So, so, uh, so we got him out and we, you know, we played through a few things, you know, but maybe for 40 minutes maximum and then that's it. And then the next night he doesn't show up. We're waiting for him, waiting. And finally he shows up and we, um, and we start recording. And the first track was, uh, the first track on the record. Whitewater. Whitewater. Big bluegrass tune. Yeah. First tune, bam, hit it. We go in and listen to sounds. Everybody goes, uh, well, well, um, ain't nothing wrong with that. And I say, oh, let's do a few more takes. So we go back out there. We do another take. It's okay. We do another take. We do three or four more takes. Tony comes back. He says, hey, man, let's go listen to the first one. And I don't remember if he was really talking like that back then, but he was moving in that direction. And uh, so we listened to the first one, and we're all like, dude, that was it. You know, we're not going to do any better than that. But we didn't know what the level was because it was the first tune we had done. And there was a couple of things people needed to fix. Yeah. So um, so then we went on from there and we cut the whole record in, I, I guess, three days, including that opening night when we got our sounds and got our first track. And then I think we cut the rest of the tunes in two more days. And then some people came back to do some fixes. It seemed uh, like he was a believer in that. Hey, in, in like, you know, even just talking about talking to folks about he, how he would sort of show up right before the gig. He wasn't one to rehearse. He seemed to really believe in, right. in kind of the yeah, moment. He liked to live in the moment. I have some other theories about it, which are that his hands have been hurting him a lot longer than anybody knew. And so sitting around playing a bunch of takes was not good for him. He wasn't going to be able to do well at, by the end of the session. I, that's my personal theory that I've finally come to that he was in, there was pain involved. Yeah. Sharon said something like that. She said that he told her that he worked so hard to create his sound. Like he had listened to doc and he had listened to Clarence and then he had listened to Coltrane and then he had listened to miles. And he said, she, she had this theory that he had worked. Well, he thought that he had worked so hard on trying to figure out exactly what he sounded like that it actually took, that it actually hurt him that he had like spent muscular energy yeah. practicing to the point where it was it started to deteriorate his hands. Yeah, it's probably like arthritis early onset, something like that. Because um but at any rate, you know, he did he did everything that it took. But I have to say, you know, whenever I wanted him to play a solo, he would do one pass and put his guitar in the case. And sometimes it was a good solo and sometimes it wasn't, but I certainly didn't know what was going to happen if he did another one, if it might be better. I was like, can you it'll take another forty seconds. Can you give me one more? Uh, I've always been believed that even the best people need a little, a little challenge only makes them alive, you know. And so I've always been the kind of person that challenged people to do, to do, you know, to see what the, where the edge was. Don't stop when it's good enough. Let's go past good enough and make sure we, you know, make sure we got the best thing. That's hard with Tony, though, you know. Yeah, it was very hard to get out of him. So I finally, uh, but 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 to finish up, you know, he did. There was a few pieces. I know he played on uh, Lights of Home. He took one solo. It was lovely. I didn't bother him, you know. But um, on, uh, on on other, on, I remember uh, Natchez Trace. I got him to lay down two or three solos, and you know, between those three solos, there was a killer solo in there. But any one of them had its flaws. So um, it worked out, and and he loved what he heard when he was done. So it wasn't like he was. Um, critical of the final product i just think it was more of the moment thing that he, he worshiped the moment and the moment we had some moments you know i tried to make sure that they ended up on the final takes like uh for instance sanctuary that rollout where everybody goes crazy and mark's going like crazy and everyone's just having so much fun um and making sure that made it onto the record even if it was even if we fell apart at the end 
Could you talk to me a little bit about making this new bluegrass record? And you and I were talking a little bit before I pressed record about, you know, you were, I know you were hoping to have Tony on it. Well, no, I knew Tony, I wasn't going to get Tony, but, but for over the years, um, those two records, uh, drive and bluegrass sessions have been, you know, my bluegrass, most serious bluegrass, even though I know they're quite progressive for bluegrass, but those are my bluegrass offerings. You know, the best I can do, the best band I could put together, the best tunes that I could scrounge up, the best, you know, hard, worked really hard on them and really proud of how they did. You know, the first one seems like a really important album to a lot of people. And the second one uh, sold, I think, over 180,000 records, which is, you know, a real accomplishment for a bluegrass record, banjo record. And, um, and so I was waiting, you know, I, I, tunes were mounting up and I kept, you know, thinking I can't do it without that magic Tony Rice, you know, and, and uh, he wasn't very responsive. I'd gotten in touch with him a few times. There wasn't really a lot coming back from him. He wasn't, you know, I was trying to think of how I could, you know, get him in the studio, even if I just got him to, you know, play some guitar rhythm and I'd fake it, I'd make it happen somehow. You know, I kept thinking somehow it could happen. But at a certain point, I just came to me that, you know, he was a complete recluse. He wasn't playing anymore and, and he wasn't coming back. And um, and so I decided to just go ahead and get over it. And um, and part of it was a jam I had with Cold Cody Kilby um, when he joined up with um, the McCoury brothers. And, and I had some of that feeling that I had gotten from Tony that the way he played rhythm made me feel like playing that music and I thought wow I'd really like to do something with him and then a little later I met Michael Cleveland at the Grammys and he was uh, strangely enough he loved Andy Statman's music and he was seemed to be very interested in what I did and eager to do some stuff together and I thought wow maybe those two guys and then I also really liked Dominic Leslie mandolin playing and uh, and and so I, I came up with this band idea with those guys and Paul, Paul Coart who all you know all were close by Nashville maybe this would be a band that I could do that music with and I I got them to come over surreptitiously as a as a jam and I put the music in front of them and they all sounded so great um, and then I was struggling with it because I'm like well I was talking to Abby I was like why am I not recording with Sam and Jerry and Stuart you know those are all the cats why and not only were you know is that a lot of people would love to hear us, you know, 20 years later, but they're my pals and they're the best people in the business. So then I thought, well, she said, well, why can't you do the record with a number of people? And I said, well, because I don't do that. I make records with a band. That's my thing. Then all the diversity gets locked together by all the different players, all the same players playing all this different kinds of music. It means I can do a lot of stuff and it has continuity. And she said, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of great people around these days. And so like everything yeah, a lot more than back when you were the yeah. only fucking banjo player who could play this kind of music, you know? Well, I, well, there are others, but yeah, but, so, um, but yeah, I mean, Tony, but you know, when you first came to town, you know, there was yeah. like, there was Sam and there was you and there was Grisman and there. Yeah. Well, I was cool. definitely looking, I definitely wanted to be the banjo player that could play with, with Tony and Grisman and Sam and all those guys. That was the unique. And that was my, one of my big goals. Yeah. But at any rate, so then, um, so then I started thinking about it, and I just started calling people up, and yeah, Sam and Jerry and everybody were willing to do it, and then that way I could get Brian, who I really loved, but for some reason I had this thing in my head about Brian that he reminded me so much of Tony, but he wasn't Tony, and I had done some stuff with him, and I was looking for something new. I played with him a lot in the bluegrass set, um, uh, in the house band uh, at Telluride every year, and I loved it. You know, we have we have a real bond, but for some reason that I wanted more, I wanted other things to happen, especially in the guitar chair, because the Tony thing was so profound to me. And it wasn't Tony; it was Brian. Brian is Brian, and he's awesome. So anyway, I was like, "Oh, Cody, 
That's interesting. And then I heard about um, Billy Strings started appeared suddenly on the scene, and we ran into each other somewhere. And he was like, "Oh, I'd love to play sometime." So I called him up and had him come over to the house one night late after the kids were asleep, and we had this hellacious jam. I was like, "Wow, this guy's really everything everybody says he is." So then, gradually, I opened up my concept until I had Billy Strings, I had Brian. When thank goodness I did because he played his ass off on this stuff, and he played some stuff none of the other guys could have done. I had Cody Kilby who did exactly what I thought he was going to do, which is make the music dance maybe more like Tony than anybody. And Molly Tuttle, who is just her own, you know, sensitive, beautiful player. I do and love hearing that Tony obviously had such an influence that you can find guitar players like that. You know, you, you, well, you, hear, you do hear, you, no one's going to be him, but you can hear parts of him in there, you know. Oh, absolutely. But what I wanted to say about it is I was just recently in the past um, few weeks, I was thinking, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Tony to, I want Tony to hear this record, you know, because of all these, the way these guys are all paying tribute to him, although nobody's trying to play like him. Um, none of them could play like he does um, without him. Uh, no, nobody, None of them could play, none of these guitar players could play the way they do without Tony Rice. Um, he, he set the stage, he created the, the new language for the guitar, and they're all building on that. Um, but they did so great, and I thought, I really wanted to hear it. And maybe the way I could get him to listen to it and see what happened next after Bluegrass Sessions would be to ask him to write liner notes for it. And, you know, we don't have liner notes these days. Nobody really has liner notes these days, but I thought that would be a really neat thing to do. And so I was thinking about that, and that's when I got the news, uh, you know, from J Jerry called me one day, uh, I guess on Christmas Day, and said I heard, you know, it was actually the day after Christmas, I heard I've got some bad news, you know. And I kind of knew what it was. I, I, told, I, I got a message that called me from Jerry, and I called Abby. I got a call to Jerry. Something's going on. He didn't call me like that and say, call me. And, uh, and then I found out what had happened. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of I, – I was pretty much immobilized for the first week. And I'm, I'm now I've come out of it, and I'm you know, finding – it's very hard for me to work on anything or care about anything for a while. I was, uh, it was a bigger – Bigger than I expected, especially considering that he's already been gone from me for a long time. Um, when, when did you guys talk last? Uh, at the uh, at the IBMA, the uh, 2013 Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, yeah, and I talked about this uh, when I was talking to Brian Mansfield. Um, that uh, there was a moment when I came up on the side of the stage and he was there. He, he, I think he came up after me. We we're getting ready to go on, and he just started strumming. He didn't rehearse or anything. He just came on stage and uh, and he started strumming his guitar, you know, uh, doing that Tony Rice rhythm thing. And that's nice and slow. And I just started rolling along and we just grabbed this little pocket for, I don't know, a minute or two, not even. And uh, and then he just stopped like he always would do if it wasn't the gig. And uh, and uh, and he said, how fast are we going to play? What are we starting with? And I said, I think it's I think it's roll on buddy. He said, oh, how fast is it going to be? And I kicked it off like we'd kicked it off when we rehearsed without him. And he said, oh, that's too fast, man. That's too fast. Now do it slower. And I was like, oh, okay. But, you know, Brian was going to be there too, so it was going to be covered. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable, but, you know, Sam's singing the song, and I didn't really know what to do. So I think I, I, think I split the difference a little bit. Uh, um, so uh, that was the scene. Let me, let me just, uh, you've been really generous. I just, got, I just got a couple left here, and they're sort of broad ones, but I think they're, they're, they're meaningful. Like, um, what made him so special? Have you have you been in your week of um, sort of reflecting and ruminating on your friendship and your music with the guy? You know what what made him so special as a musician? Well, I've listened back, and like a lot of people talk, it says an overused uh, a phrase, deep dive. Taking a deep dive, I've taken a deep dive into Tony, and sniffed around a lot of different periods of his playing. And of course, I go back to my favorite 
recordings like Old Man in the Forest because because the vocal the song is just so evocative. And I listen to him um, like when he's singing, there's almost no guitar, and then he then he strums like three chords in between before he continues to sing, and those chords like they blow me away. Still, just the way he strummed those three chords and lays it in there for you, even with all the other instruments going. And then I went and then I went back and I listened to um, Cold on the Shoulder because that was my real experience. Oh, there was a number of times when I played with him on stage, you know, quite a few, probably hard to count how many times it finally happened. You know, I, I remember going to see him someplace at the town crier and he made me play the whole show with him up in new, up, I'd love to find that tape. Um, um, and so many times with Sam and, and Jerry at, at Merle fest, you know, year after year and so many stages. And, you know, if I was there, he would almost always ask me to play some of the show. And it was just really, really a big deal to me that that would happen. And I looked forward to it because he brought things out of me that nobody, no one else could. It was like riding a magic carpet. Um, and it was a feeling that, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I can't say I have had that very often, especially out, outside of playing with him. I can't say I've had that experience to that extent ever, but having that experience with him now, he and Sam together, now that is a Ziploc to the groove. I mean, we put those two guys together, and all, not only is Tony making the magic carpet, but Sam's locking it down, so there's no doubt as to where the, the offbeats are. And it is just banjo player candy. It's banjo he, candy. What was he like? Uh, well, he, he could be very serious. Uh, uh, he was very funny. Uh, his thing with with humor, I mean, he, he, he became a character almost. He would walk in, and he would always do the same joke. Like he would get into a joke and he would do a voice <clears throat> and he, and then for five years, that's all he would do. You'd see him. He'd be like, Hey babies, that would be it. Or it would be like, you look marvelous. That was, his, he was into you look marvelous for years. And at first it was very funny. And it <laughs> was not, not really what funny. I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. It was at first, it was like not that funny. Cause yeah, that was on Saturday night live. So we are going to laugh at the joke that was on Saturday night live last week. But then he'd say it again and he'd say it again and he'd say it again. And for a year and a half later, he was still saying it. And it started to get really funny. And his, his, his concept of humor was, if I just keep on doing it, it's going to come around. And so he would do it and do it shamelessly, the same jokes over and over. Oh, off stage. Now, on stage, I just don't ever remember him making jokes. But backstage, he was always funny. He was lively. He was fun. And I, I loved it when, like, after we did the playing and we'd go eat somewhere or, or, or like, after the rehearsal, when we'd go rehearse for something, we'd all go have a meal and, and he would be fun and he'd be happy. And But then again... You know, he disappointed me a number of times. Uh, he could be canceled out on the Bluegrass Sessions tour. And um, and I always knew when I was dealing with him that there was a volatility there. And I, I couldn't be 100% sure what was going to happen. But uh, he did a ton of sessions. The other thing with me was that he did a lot of sessions. And I wanted what he did for me to be unique and special. And I didn't. And that's why I pushed him. Not because he didn't do good enough on his live takes, but because I was looking for something uh, that hadn't been heard before from him and from everybody on the stuff with me. I, I wanted it to be something they would they could point at and say, "Hey, there's some stuff on here that I've never done anywhere else." Because that's all I had. I mean, it was a bluegrass bluegrass banjo record. If it's just a, just like you know, just like Tony Tony Trishka's uh, Hill Country, or you know, which is exactly the same band essentially, um, except me. You know, it, it needed to have some things that were. Um, and unfortunately, I produced that record. I love that record, Tony. You know what I mean? But it was like it's an example of how often you can you can find a you know, dozens of records that Tony, uh, banjo records even, that Tony played on and, and records. And they were almost all rushed through. 
but I didn't want to rush through this stuff because I wanted it to be um, the best everyone could do. And, uh, and otherwise, there was no point in me doing it because there's already a lot of all these people out there documented. And it, I think that's why, I mean, just to, to be you know, narcissistic for a moment, I think that's why the records stand up because they were not rushed through. Yeah, and I think that's why I think that's why when in in Tony's death, the three records people are talking about are Crow's record, Manzanita, and Drive. You yeah, know, like you know, three careful records. You know? Yeah, although Drive again was made in in three days, his part of it was done in three days. Ah, still, man, I can you know I wouldn't I wouldn't fuck around in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure he would. Before we go, and you've been great. Um, I've been asking everybody to do this. Um, and I'll tell you my favorite answer when it's over, but, um, just do, do me a favor. And when you picture Tony Rice, tell me what comes into your head. Tell me what image, describe to me the image that comes into your head when you picture Tony Rice. I see him, uh, you know, just this moment, the image that came into my head was Tony Rice, um, on cold on the shoulder, which was very profound for me. Cause all of a sudden I was in the band, the Manzanita band, basically. I was a big, big fan of that record. I was suddenly... There I was. There was Sam. There was Jerry. There was Tony. There was Todd Phillips. Vassar was the only difference. And Vassar, I had never played with. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't know Vassar very well. And I watched Tony, and I, for some reason, I remember him sitting in a chair. It was either a stool or like a, like a, high, a high chair that had um, like a studio chair that almost maybe revolved and had foot rest. I don't know why I have it in my head that way. And I remember just being like looking at him, like singing these songs and like doing it all live, just exactly like it ended up on the record, you know, like just being like, I think he even had a cigarette, you know, and he would be sitting there and we would go do four takes of these things and be like, yeah, I think we got it. And he would, the way he sang, you know, and the way he played on those tracks, it's just like, uh, just to be there around that kind of musical perfection, um, and then just the image of him it was one of the first, my first images of him, you know, in a, in that setting it was, uh, yeah, I'll always stay with me. Man, again, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss and, and no, thanks thank for you. making the time to talk to him. I talked to us. Yeah, today, I don't feel him. like it's my loss. It is. I mean, it is my loss, but I, yeah, I mean, I guess you'll you, as you talk to different people, maybe Jerry, you'll see how, you know, as much as we loved him, we felt like distanced from him like he wouldn't let us get very close so again it's hard to like act like i'm one of the close family or something i I know that we had a close bond i talked to critter and he told me that um tony had a note from drive on his uh next to his stereo system he had that beautiful stereo system probably the same one and it said uh hey tony you played your ass off how does it feel to not have an ass you know <laughs> And 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 I I forgot all about it, but but apparently it, it's he put it right up there on the wall, right right next to his stereo, and it was there to his apparently to his dying day. And I also asked him about, um, hey, was there a picture of Branford Marsalis up there saying uh, all the best to you, Tony Tony Rice? And uh, and he said, yeah, it was. And I said, well, Tony asked me to, if I to see if I could get him an autograph, a Branford Marsalis autograph. Uh, when I was going on the Tonight Show with the with the Flectones, and and somehow he knew I was doing it, so, and then that helped me to remember that we were friends, you know, that we had this kind of relationship. And although they were, we weren't phone buddies after he became a recluse and, and text buddies, um, there was a fondness there, and uh, and that it wasn't just me. Yeah, man. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, me too.
Thank you so much to Bela. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that that, that bluegrass record, and um, I really appreciate you making the time to talk about your old friend. Okay, up next, Sharon Gilchrist. Sharon Gilchrist is an incredible mandolinist, great musician, who not only toured with Tony, but is the rare case of someone who actually toured with Tony. Let me explain. What I mean by that is like, you could be on tour with Tony and never really see him except on stage. He preferred to drive alone by himself overnight. But Sharon would occasionally join Tony for some of these all night drives. And they'd have an opportunity to talk about music and and talk about life and she tells a few of those amazing stories here. Here's my conversation with Sharon Gilchrist. If you don't mind, I mean, what, what went through your head when you, when you got the call? Uh, I, you know, literal shock. And I had no words, uh, just that sense of loss and immediate, a lot of tears and just... Yeah, just a heavy hit, I would say. What's, your, what's yeah. your earliest memory of just like knowing about him, like knowing that he existed? <laughs> you know, it's funny, like I I don't have an earliest, like he was always in my life, you know, as um, because I grew up doing bluegrass and going to festivals every weekend of festival season every year <laughs> from, yeah, since I was a baby and um, probably in utero, actually. So Tony Rice was just always there and um, always a hero and got to see him perform a lot at festivals when I was a kid. So I got to see the Bluegrass Album Band um, and, uh, boy, uh, the Quintet, the Grisman Quintet. And um, I want to say, boy, I know I saw those for sure, like a number of times. And... uh, just, you know, like it was, he was always part of like the, the newest thing, the newest, coolest thing that was breaking ground in our genre of music. And so it was always just the, like, for me, you know, he was, he was the top of the heap for me growing up. Like I'm a mandolin player, a bass player, but I've probably listened more to Tony Rice as an instrumentalist than anybody else um because i think again in spite of playing mandolin um i also grew up around a lot of guitar players and not a lot of mandolin players hardly any really so there was this huge infusion of guitar music from tony but i think i just also thought he was kind of him vassar clements like they just kind of were right up at the top of all of it for me was it was it a goal of yours to end up playing with him? God, no. Um, <laughs> that was like beyond my wildest dreams. Um, I would never have imagined it uh, that 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 our paths would cross that way. So, so how did it how did it come about that you ended up playing? Really, um, through Peter, through Peter Rowan, um, I had, um, you know, I was really aware of Peter's music and was in a band in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that was touring a lot and put out a couple of records and our booking agency was based out of Colorado and we were their only really straight up acoustic bluegrass act. And so um, they were more in the jam band world, but they did an event that Peter was part of. And so, you know, we were always trying to prompt our agency, like here's, this would be a good thing for a bluegrass band to do. We were trying to kind of 
you know, feed them ideas along the way. And so I remember saying, Hey, you guys are doing this event with, with Peter Rowan. Could you send our CD and maybe we'll get some work out of it or something. And, um, so then fast forward two years later, the band's broken up and I went to Rocky Grass and hung out and the band Uncle Earl was looking for a bass player at the time. And they were kind of talking to me maybe about it, had me sit in with them at the Oscar Blues Bar in downtown Lyons. And um, Peter was there and I didn't meet him, but he recognized me and um, later told me that when he had gotten that CD, I don't know if he ever heard it or not, but he said he just remembered looking at the cover and saying, like having a feeling he was going to work with me someday. And so that that time at Rocky Grass was, uh, he saw me, and I think that's right when uh, the quartet was losing their mandolin player. So, you know, just timing and all of that kind of came together. So Peter called me a, a few months later and asked me to do some gigs and let's see how it goes. And then, so if I'm not mistaken, you met Tony on stage. That's right. Yeah. So no hang beforehand, <clears throat> no jam, no rehearsal. No, no, nothing. No talk about what we might play on stage. Um, my first gig with Peter and Tony and, and Bren, um, just, which was interesting because here I am going to play with my heroes, you know, and, um, and, you know, being the, Another instrumentalist on stage with Tony that's going to be taking a lot of the solos. Um, of course, I could have just been so freaked out. But um, I remember uh, not knowing, you know, P the way Peter had posed this jam cruise gig. That's what this was. It was a cruise, but, right? Yeah. So not only did you not, did you not meet him before, but you were on in the middle of open water. Right, right. Wow, right, and I and I am not a water person at right. all. So it's um, <laughs> a really welcoming way to do a gig. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I was yeah. like, go figure. Yeah. The first gig, I'm on the water, and um, we'll see how that goes. But, yeah. but yeah. So there I am, and I'm just thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to do another gig with these people, but here I am, and God, this is Tony Rice. I could freak out, or I could just enjoy the heck out of this moment, you know, and and that's just I just that's what I did. I just was so excited to play with them. And, um, and it, it was kind of nice not knowing ahead of time what was going to happen. And if I would ever work with them again, it just took the pressure off in a way. It's like, this is happening today, right now. I'm just going to enjoy it. So it was, I think it went pretty good. Must've. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember, do you Got remember to the do first, some more. Do, you, do you remember the first, I mean, you might not, but do you remember the first tune you played with, with them when you got up on stage? Oh, wow. Um, oh, man. I don't remember the first tune. I remember doing Pig in a Pen, um, and uh, we played Leather Britches, and, um, you know, and I remember Peter just, you know, giving me the eye to jump in on the third part of Harmony, even though we had never sung three-part Harmony before together, and... Um, I think we did Shady Grove as well. And um, Peter, like just pushing me to the center mic to stand right next to Tony for the intro where we kind of, we jammed out like on a rhythm vamp while Tony was um, just getting the thing going, um, playing some riffs, um, but like just being pushed right next to Tony. And, you know, it was, it was great. I hear he had a real power 
It's funny you mentioned that, you know, you get, you get up on stage and it's your first time playing with him and you're going to be responsible for taking a lot of the breaks. You know, I, I understand he had a real power or a real gift for making lead players feel really comfortable, like giving you a really great net to, to kind of operate on top of. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, it just doesn't get better, any better than that. I've never experienced anything else like it. And to this day, I would say... When I'm, uh, when I'm thinking about just a lot of things musically, when I'm thinking how I want things to go or how might I approach something, that's still really the reference point for me. I almost always kind of go back to what was, what did it feel like to be on stage in those moments? And um, <clears throat> because there was such a freshness happening. That's one of the things I go back to. There's Tony's timing that's so impeccable. And I, I that is my uh, gold standard for timing. And I just, it's so visceral. I'm, I'm so grateful I have those three years of gigs with them to have it in my body to really go back to, okay, that's time. You know, when I'm going for that, that's where I go to. Um, the way of accompanying with a lot of moving chord voicings and different rhythms than just your straight up boom chuck kind of guitar rhythm. I really learned that approach from him at that time, not, you know, just, just learning it by ear, by being around him doing that really freed me up as a backup player. And uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, to play on the top of it. Um, yeah. It was something that just seemed to like open up a pathway for you. What a, what a beautiful thing. You know, I think there's, there's, there's a lot to be said for people who can take great breaks and, you know, learn some great licks and, you know, figure out how to play, but to support another musician, like to be there in a supporting role and to support someone and help them be their best is such a rare, such a mm -hmm. rare quality in someone who's yeah. also sort of so virtuosic, you know? Absolutely. I think he really, uh, enjoyed that part of it like immensely um it, the first real conversation I got to have with him um it was maybe like the third gig we did together and I took this decided to ride with him after the gig that night because I wanted to check in and see you know how's this feeling to you he and rode by himself after the gig <clears throat> always yeah he would uh you know we get off the stage and you know he'd say where's the paymaster and get his check and hit the road and uh, drive through the night to the next gig. So if I wanted to hang with Tony, that was the time. It was the car ride to the next gig. So I, I tried to do that about every tour and um, at one time. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that first time though, he was talking, he had McCoy Tyner playing in the car. And, you know, we weren't really talking at first and I was not going to be too imposing on his late night car ride, but just chilling and listening to McCoy Tyner. And there was some intro on the, on the, on the, I want to say it was a cassette, but like he just kept rewinding the intro over and over and over and over until he could figure out what was happening harmonically. And then he kind of relaxed and um, started talking about how he loved jazz piano, <clears throat> particularly McCoy Tyner and how that's what he's doing in his backup. He's like, you know, if, you ever, if you're ever in the studio with me and you single out my guitar rhythm track, it's not gonna sound, it's not even gonna sound like I'm playing the song 
you're playing, you know, and it's not going to sound like a regular rhythm guitar player. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like a jazz pianist. I'm trying to comp like a jazz pianist would in a jazz ensemble. And as soon as he said, it, I was like, of course, that that is what he's doing. There's like, da, 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 or ba, ba, just like, you know, just nice hits behind what people Yeah, anticipating do. the one a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't I, I didn't know he was so self aware. I mean, obviously I knew he knew what he was doing. And I I knew that he was incorporating Coltrane into his playing. And I and I knew that he, you know, I knew I knew it wasn't um uh, unintentional what came out of them, but I didn't know he was so self aware sure. to say, Hey, when you listen to me, here's what here's what you're getting. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, and yeah, and I think also soloing wise, he was he was like, That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to emulate a piano um in in the movements up and down the neck and um it it was you know just again as soon as he said it I could relate to it from having played just the tiniest bit of piano myself but um made so much sense like you know it's such a lyrical sense and such a wide range almost every solo that he does has such a wide range to it you know you had a rare opportunity that, you know, even people who played a lot with him didn't have, which was to spend time with him. You know, it wasn't it wasn't rare for people who played with him to still not know him very well or even get to spend any time with him at all. So I, I guess broadly, yeah. what was he like? Uh, um, you know, I, I, of course, I've been thinking about him a lot, the music a lot and yeah, what is Tony like? Like, who was he? What do I know of him? There's a part of me that wonders, yeah, who really knows Tony? Because when when someone's identity is so large outside of themselves, can they ever be seen outside? Like, can I see Tony outside of that? You know, and is can he relax? And um, you know, like, just where does that line get blurred? Um, is he comfortable being himself? But you know, what I can say that is um, was so consistently always present was just how kind of a person he was. Just so, I would say he's probably a very gentle human being, um, very sensitive, very observant, um, very kind and respectful and encouraging Um and um, a thinker, just always thinking, and loved to figure out how some things put together, like how any kind of system works, whether it's mechanical, um, musical, political, you know, like just, he was always trying to see things, I think from bottom up or top down, or just the, the ins and outs of how something's put together. And so he's always thinking, observing, and but so kind and really funny, you know. Really? Just, uh, yeah, yeah, really funny. Just always like some kind of quip coming out, and uh, and um, yeah, fun to be around and and cool to talk to in the car. Like I was always surprised there'd be a lot of listening to music together in the car. That was always great, and I think always jazz. I don't remember anything that wasn't jazz that we listened to um a lot of listening and then um you know then it get into just talking about like where where did you grow up or um you know who do you who do you like listening to um you know just chatting um 
but you know, relaxed, interested to find out about my life or me, um, my thoughts on things, just such a kind person. It was such an interesting time to get to play with him too. You know, it was after he had to stop singing. Um, it wasn't long before he stopped playing either, you know, not that long before he stopped right. playing. It's a, it's a really interesting time mm-hmm. you got, you, you got to spend with him. I agree entirely. And I'm, I'm of course so grateful for that experience. And um, that's one of the things that has come to mind for me in the last week or so is what a testament it is to Peter Rowan's musicianship and artistry and um, that I, I don't know another vocalist and songwriter that um, project that Tony was part of, for, you know, for that long and put out a couple of records with. And I know he loved playing with Peter because he loved his singing. He loved the songwriting. And um, I think that's such a high, you know, high praise, which obviously we all love Peter and know uh, <laughs> he deserves that praise. Um, but I just, it's so cool to me that, uh, Tony would choose to spend that time there. And I, I really think that probably kept Tony out playing much longer than probably would have happened otherwise. Cause I think he had a project he enjoyed. He had another front person to share some of the burden of being on the road or the logistics or the business part. So I think it really, you know, I think Peter really brought a lot of music from Tony out to us for years there. When did you last talk to him? Um, it's been a while. It's, uh, it was 2012 or 13, I think. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm just kind of catching up. Um, and I would ask him a musical question from time to time, you know, like something that he had said would stick out in my head and I would text him, Anything, anything you feel like sharing, like, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm not, sure not to put you on the spot, but I do. I just, I'm dying yeah. to know some, that's great. You know, you know. um, well, you, you know, like the, the last time we actually talked on the phone, I remember telling him I was going to teach at a music camp and I hadn't done it before. And it, you know, again, he was just so encouraging um, like, he's like, oh, you'll be fine. Don't, don't worry about it. You know? Um, and, and I don't even think I had told him I was worried about it, but I think he picked up on it and he's like, oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry. And, um, he's like, I don't do a lot of those things. And, um, uh, you know, he's like, I don't know how to tell people what I do. Like, you know, what do you, what do you say? You just, I just do it, you know? Um, and so that was interesting, but, um, we got into a conversation about, um, and Oliver and I was telling him about this record that I was into um, at the time and an Oliver Nelson album. And um, I was like, man, I think I found my favorite solo in the whole world. And he's like, I know the one because I had already mentioned the album to him. He's like, I know the one um, stolen moments. And I was like, yes, <laughs> it's this beautiful, beautiful solo um, that, um, Oliver Nelson plays on Stolen Moments. I, I have to tell I, the next question I was going to ask you was what made him so special as a musician? But I, I think 
I got a glimmer of it there when just by the fact that he said, I don't really know how to teach it. Like, I just do what I do. It feels like it was very hard to separate who he was from the music that he played. Yeah. And, you know, um, I'll say a lot of my time around Tony, I think I felt, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've just one of the things I've regretted so much is that I didn't pick his brain more. But I felt this real compulsion to leave the guy alone, you know, like when we were on the road, like, you know, everybody wanted a piece of him and I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be a bandmate, somebody that he could relax around and not feel that pressure from. But um, I wish I had asked more in terms of how how he put that together. Um, One of the things he did tell me that first car ride was know wanting to play like a piano player and he was saying you know you know when I was growing up figuring this stuff out there wasn't anybody to listen to like there wasn't anybody doing what I wanted to do he's like I learned a lot from Clarence and Doc he's like I learned this but I was hearing something and there I didn't know what it was yet and he's like I was carving it out And um, he said he just worked so hard to carve out that style, that sound, and that he felt like he worked so hard at it that it really took a toll on him physically. He felt like he physically carved out that sound and put those hours in physically to make this thing happen. And he really felt like that was a big part of what ended up, uh, you know, being hard on him physically, uh, the arthritis and all of that, it felt like it really took a toll. But I, I, I just, I, you know, I wish I had picked his brain a little bit more about like, well, what, what was the process? Um, I don't, I think he got into like the understanding of jazz and really applying it um, later on, like after, definitely, like after, way after he was already established as Tony Rice, the guitarist, he told me that Grisman was really, uh, it seemed like he was very much responsible for imparting a lot of that wisdom to Tony, <clears throat> the understanding of the modes and how they're working over certain changes. And he's like, oh, I didn't know any of that till I played with Grisman. What, what do you think his legacy is or will be in the music? Mm. That's a hard one. I know, but well, it's, yeah. Cause it's so huge. Right. Um, it, it, there's the singing, you know, um, that voice that I heard someone describe it this week as um, that they had interpreted it as cool and aloof, that they maybe didn't think that much of his singing because they found him aloof as a singer. And that just struck me as so odd (laughs) because I I always felt like it, just that smooth tone. There was so much of him in that tone. And um, then I started thinking about that. Like you have other singers who put more of their personal stamp on it with a, maybe more inflections or accent or just this kind of real um, distinct way of en- enunciating their syllables. And Tony was very, you know, like, this great diction, this really smooth, streamlined thing. And I was thinking, you know, he was really serving the song as a singer. 
that's what he was, he was really serving the music and that was what he did all the time. And so there's that part of his legacy. And then I also think um, just the inventiveness, like being always at the front edge of that new wave of evolution that would be happening in acoustic music. And um, for as long as he, that's the thing I find so fascinating is you've got this man who is part of the bluegrass album band, um, uh, re-recording those, you know, first generation songs in this kind of more modern way, but that's bluegrass. And, um, you know, so this man who's steeped in bluegrass, but absolutely maintained that and carried in, into this, these new forays that were happening, um, bringing jazz into the bluegrass scene and um, his willingness to do that and, you know, to leave J.D. Crow and go out to California and hang out with the quintet. And I mean, he had a huge fan base at the time. So that willingness to, to really take a left turn in his career, to me, bespeaks of his willingness to take a risk and to do new things and to push the edges of whatever he was doing. When you, when you close your eyes and think about Tony, or when you picture him in your mind, I'm, I'm dying to know what, what comes to mind. Can you tell me what you see in your, in your mind's eye when you picture Tony Rice? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, there's just the, um, a very dignified presence. Like a, just a real dignified manner in which he would carry himself and present himself. That was very important to him was presenting himself as, uh, as finely as he could, you know, just wearing the nice clothes and driving up in a nice car and, um, and just the way he held himself on stage, um, that stateliness and, and an understatedness at the same time, you know, he's, he's not a legacy because he was such an entertainer. He was very quiet and understated really. In turn, which is why we all wonder still who was Tony Rice, you know, but um, yeah. I, so what I really think of when I think of Tony is just that inner quality that was Tony that it's hard to put into words, but it was so palpable and always present. And I, the image that comes to mind for me is, you know, there's that stillness in him that's so deep, such a deep well, but any second it could turn into like a thunder cloud, just brewing, 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 and then a lightning strike in energy, in terms of energy, just this, a storm coming through a weather front. He just had such power. And, and I think he was a deeply emotional human being, you know, I think there's a lot going on in there and churning and, and then, you know, just bringing it to the surface in some really exciting, powerful electric way. Sharon, it's, it's so lovely to talk to you, you know, and, and thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much. Thank you so much to Sharon. Um, 
those stories are uh, absolutely beautiful. I still can't quite get over the one where she gets on stage with Tony Rice and has to perform with him without ever really having met him before. And ah, it's, it's, it's so lovely to talk to Sharon. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, up next, I was so excited to talk to Peter Rowan. Peter Rowan comes up uh, a fair bit in that last interview. Peter Rowan, I'd never talked to him before. True legend of bluegrass music from his time as one of Bill Monroe's, I think he called him City Billies, like Northern musicians, to his work with Mule Skinner and then Olden in the Way. And of course his work with Tony Rice. They made two albums together. And I think as you can tell from our conversation, there's a considerable amount of respect between Tony and Peter. Peter Rowan joined us from Berkeley, California. You know, uh, so I think we should start off pretty basic. First off, I should say, I'm really sorry for your loss of your friend. Well, I mean, quite honestly, you know, Tony, he really kept to himself. But one of the interesting, we're talking about Tony Rice, um, recently passed. and uh, But one of the interesting things about Tony was, although he was a reclusive in his own way, when he, when he opened up to you, it was like a treasure, you know, uh, because he had a rich inner life, you know, but he had some conflicts in his outer life that I think caused a few obstacles along the way. But I was happy to be playing with him during the last eight years of his touring. When did you first become aware of him? When did you first kind of know that Tony? Oh, uh, you know, uh, David Grisman introduced me to him. Tony had, uh, well, I knew Clarence and the Kentucky Colonels and those guys. And, uh, but I had no idea about Tony Rice and he hadn't made his first real recording. I don't believe yet, but anyway, it was, it was the stuff with, I think Todd Phillips, who was playing with David Grisman, uh, playing second mandolin with David Grisman. Or no, he was playing bass with David Grisman in the David Grisman quintet. But at, you see, after Olden in the way, there was a kind of like a fallout period uh, in the in the seventy three seventy four, and between you and David, well, it was just b- between projects, really. Right. You know, so I mean, you know, we were still in our twenties and just kind of like, thank you very next. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it just whatever was coming along was exciting and fun to do. Um, and the old and in the way, you know. It, it was, uh, I wouldn't say turmoil, but it, it, it was involved with, you know, Jerry Garcia, who was, you know, he was on a track, a different track, a fast track of, of uh, basically he was in a rock and roll band. Yeah. And that that is so engrossing, you know, to keep you occupied forever to try and herd those cats. And, um, but we did, uh, we, we, David, David was producing my two brothers, Chris and Lauren, and I came out to Stinson Beach. And we we um, we just started picking out, outdoors along the beach and the dunes in the morning, have our coffee and our smoke. And when Olden in the Way, I mean, it, over a two and a half, three year period, we only did, you know, we only were active for a year and a half in the middle of that. But there was a lot of just jamming to and fro before and after. So afterwards, and Olden in the Way is winding down, David is into his creating dog music. And he's invited Tony Rice to join. 
So one afternoon, David said, come on, let's go over and see Tony Rice. He's just moved to town. So we get in the car and we drive over from Stinson Beach. And there's Tony and he's living in an apartment and he is the funniest person I think I've ever met. Because, you know, in bluegrass and a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, milieu that have persona, right? I mean, I'd love to hear the, I'd love to hear these congressmen do imitations of each. I'd love to hear what their imitations of their rivals and congressional cohorts are, you know, because bluegrass people can imitate each other because it's a music you had to learn, you know, you had to learn to sing like Lester Flatt or Bill Monroe. You had to, you had to enter into their soulful expressions. I'd love to hear if there's any like other groups of people that, that can imitate and, you know, do impersonations. Like we all have a Bill Monroe impersonation we do. And uh, Tony was a master. He kept me in stitches. I mean, laughing my head off for hours as we went out for pizza or something. Doing impressions of Monroe and those guys? And me and David. (laughs) Oh yeah, man, right right to our face. It was like the most hilarious evening I've ever spent. Honest to God, it was really funny. Uh, And you know, but we all, do imitations you know i can do an imitation of tony you know and 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 tony could imitate me to my face it was you know he he'd pretend he was me and he'd talk about earth opera that i had with david grisman he called it earth and opera the <laughs> earth and opera and uh it was just a funniest dang thing you know and uh and uh, you mentioned Clarence. You mentioned Clarence there, which I'm, I'm happy you did because I mean, I mean, my in my first introduction to your music outside of Monroe was the Mule Skinner tape that Neil Rosenberg gave me. You know, and it was such a gift to to see. And after that, you know, I followed, I followed up on the rest of your music. But then I remember watching Clarence, and I felt like I was watching Charlie Chaplin. Like I felt like I was watching this very fabled musician, this very legendary musician. I was watching him play bluegrass play bluegrass music. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about the any connections you might see between Clarence and Tony Rice because I know Clarence was Tony's hero. Yeah, they a couple of points I wanted to make about Tony in his when he would talk about himself. It was always a surprise if if there was an audience listening to him. He'd always you know raised the bar in terms of his presentation, as he did with his music. Uh, he'd address public crowds in a way that was so dignified and everything. But on the on the personal level, he did talk about Clarence. And, he, and uh, there were two people in his life that, that really were powerful for him, musicians anyway. Um, one was uh, Vassar Clements that Tony's dad and Vassar's parents were friends. And when they moved to Florida, the young Tony Rice hung out with Vassar and doing on these beach barbecue things, you know, uh, and they were even net fishing in Florida at that time. I think he was very young. Tony was very young, but Vassar was an elder brother to him. Uh, and what, they had moved to California at one point and Tony talked about that. He, uh, that's where he met Clarence, the young Clarence White, and uh, he was uh, he was moved by Clarence's uh, subtleties, 
on the guitar. And um, it's ironically, somehow, and I, I've been hearing several different stories about this, and, but he actually told me, I can't remember how he got Clarence's guitar. It's a hybrid guitar. It has, it's a D28 body from the, you know, herringbone, as they say, vintage, with a, with a guild neck, electric, sort of a guild guitar a neck. It's less of a Martin neck, less, less of a, a handful. It, it's a, it has a, a lower profile. And funny enough that it really fit Tony's way of approaching it, the guitar. Um, but Tony, I believe Clarence really, really impressed Tony because um, I think they were close to the same age, uh, young teenagers when they met in California, as far as I know. Um, but the fact that Tony played Clarence's, you know, guitar says a lot. Uh, Peter, I've heard Tony described as sort of unknowable. Well, let me just give you just an anecdote about that. I mean, aside from talking about his deep, deep love for Vassar Clements due to his childhood experiences with Vassar, not just knowing him as a musician in a recording studio, but as a, as a child, you know, family picnics by the beach. When, here's the older brother Vassar who has so much wisdom about him. You know, and Vassar, you know, he, he was 16 years old when he went to, with Bill Monroe and he re recorded the Mule Skinner Blues and all. The New Blue Moon of Kentucky, you know, another another rebirth of Bill Monroe's music with new musicians, which is one of the great legacies in bluegrass. Um, but here's here's an idea about Tony. You know, I mean, there's many things that I, I wouldn't talk about in an interview that were his... You know, I, I mean, let's put it this way. His reasons for being a private person were a deeply personal... Uh, of course. I wouldn't want you to say anything you're not comfortable saying, you know? Yeah, deep, deeply personal reflections on on things in his life, you know? And I, I was privy to some of it. But here's an example. Now, Tony never wanted to fly. So we had some dates in California. And... He actually, he drove to Texas twice to play this festival down there called the Old Settlers. Um, that's, okay, that's halfway across the country from North Carolina. And I mean, you've never heard people respond to something that there's like a, he'd just like play and there'd be a collective intake of breath and then a kind of, whoo, you know, just like, you'd hold your breath while Tony was doing those solos, as, you know playing hardcore, straight-ahead bluegrass. And he had a lot of folks who would, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. As a private person as he was, he mentored several people. Uh, I mean, I'll just say this. The Tony was in AA. He, I guess he he had a problem. I hope I didn't contribute to it. But he, he, became, he, he became, you know, uh, free of that, free of alcohol. And he had the little uh, little uh, counseling coins you get, you know, for years and months of sobriety and everything like that. He was very proud of that, and he was doing good with that. Um, and so he would mentor other people, right? People from that world. 
um, he would counsel them. We never talk about them, ever. It was just something he did. You know, he'd been through, he'd been on the hard road. He knows what that's about. But let me just tell you this one an anecdote that really shows Tony, I mean, to me. So he's driving across the country to come to San Francisco. I mean, that's a long way, but he'd rather be doing that and listening to good music on his, uh, you know, stereo in, in his Mustang <laughs> than going to the airport man and having, he would ship his guitar days ahead and, you know, and I'm at home one night and I, the phone rings and it's Tony and I, Hey man, where are you? And I, I would rarely hear from him if it wasn't like about business, business of being, uh, getting out to play music. He said, man, I'm in Arizona. I'm standing on my dad's acre that he bought on, from the back of a sports magazine in the fifties. I said, what? He said, yeah, my dad never got here. He said, you know, those magazines in the 50s, like even every magazine would have like land for sale in the back, you know, as well as, you know, magic rings that you could buy for, you know, yeah. sky king, you know. Yeah, sea he monkeys said, and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 You know, monkeys and things you put in a jar and it blossoms into monkeys and flowers. And but they also had land deals. And Tony's dad had plunked down 150 bucks on an acre in Arizona. And Tony had taken it upon himself, driving across the country, to go find that piece of land that his father had never seen and call me. And it was, to me, it was the most moving, <laughs> it was so moving to hear Tony standing on his dad's little plot in Arizona yeah, my dad bought this in the 50s, man. My dad. And now Tony had a very turbulent relationship, I understand, with his father. But it was like, it was the most emotional call. You know, he was, he had reconnected with his father by visiting his father's dream of living in Arizona. He, he felt something there. He, he strikes me it's from all the stories I'm hearing. He's a very powerful, yes, a deeply feeling person. Absolutely. And, but tre tremendously disciplined and also maybe at times, you know, dealing with a, a lot of conflicting emotional things as we all do. But that moment of hearing him on the phone, man, I, I tears came to my eyes and I know he was, he was moved. He wouldn't have called. He said, I just wanted to call you, man. I'm standing on my dad's acre. <laughs> in in Arizona, man, out in the desert. I, I was speechless. I was like, you what? <laughs> and then and he came to California. He got there two days later and never mentioned it again. But it was like, I mentioned it. I said, man, that was so great. You called me from there. And he said, yeah, my dad bought it off the back of a magazine. He never went there. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, but that's, you know, that, I mean, that to me is something special. When did, when did you last talk to him? Well, I, I, this is very personal and uh, in the, in that uh, it's revealing, you know, Tony became very uh, kind of pale and jaundiced and dropped a lot of weight. 
and he also his uh, he, he had afflicted by tendonitis. But um, the last time I spoke with him, I was on the road with uh, Ronnie McCurry, the, the traveling McCurries. We had some dates down in Georgia and Florida and in North Carolina. <clears throat> and so we did that cycle of dates and I was coming up through North Carolina and I called Tony and he answered the phone. And I said, man, I'm just down half a mile from your house coming through Reedsville on the way to this gig with Ronnie. I said, I'd love to come by and see you. And he said, I'm really sorry, man. He said, I just can't see anybody. Mm. So, I mean, I just, well, I respected that, you know, that's that, Tony's that way. But uh, he, maybe he was suffering from, uh, you know, some ill health or something. I, I, that's what we all thought was going on. What do, you, what do you think his legacy will be to the music? Well, I'm sure Billy Strings and uh, and uh, the whole gang of guitar slingers will do a tribute album to him, and it should be a fabulous thing because they all learn from him. You know, uh, Critter, uh, the guitar player for... Uh, the Punch Brothers has a big article that floated out on the internet from with Variety that magazine. Was beautiful. Yeah, that was really great because he actually got to go live down there with Tony and study with him. And um, I, I just imagine there'll be a, a, a project or two or more of guitar picking, you know, the, the Clarence legacy, the Doc Watson legacy, the Tony Rice legacy, very, very strong. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been just, uh, after reading Critter's, Critter's article, I've been playing guitar at my house and uh, kind of like just uh, thinking about how distinctive Tony made everything he did, you know, and uh, and just just reflecting reflecting on that and going, wow, okay, there's a tone that there's a Tony note, <laughs> one among many, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's an inspiration, man, total yeah. inspiration to everybody. Uh, clean, good timing, and letting the guitar talk. Great, great singer too. You know, I know by the oh, time yes. when, when you guys Jeez. were doing the quartet record, which I really loved, he was he wasn't singing at that point. But I mean, nobody you, sang bass on things live. He would still sing with you, hey? Well, at the time, he was still sipping on the beer, actually, mm -hmm. which allowed him to loosen up, and he would sing. He would actually. It was funny. He would pull his hair out of the ponytail and let it fall down around his shoulders and sing bass on on gospel tunes. It was like it was like a Rastafarian thing, man. <laughs> That's very cool. I mean, you know, when he lost his voice, it was so sad. You know, he was such a powerful singer in the music. You know. Yeah, but he still had a bass voice. He had like a, you know, like really low, incredible low range. Uh, he could have recorded in that range, and people would have loved it. But I just think he felt. He was attached to what he had been able to do as a bluegrass style, you know, tenor baritone voice. 
Uh, uh, you've been yeah. you've, you've been really generous, man. I, I I'll close off this way: is say, like if you just do me a favor in your mind's eye when you picture your buddy Tony Rice, paint me a picture of what you see when you see Tony Rice. It'd be more what I heard. We'd be getting back in the dressing room and thinking maybe a second encore, and you'd hear that Mustang fire up in the parking lot. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's that. <laughs> Peter, that's great. That's great. He'd, he'd, be, he'd be one foot out the door. Gone. <laughs> Peter, what a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much to Peter Rowan. Uh, Peter, by the way, while we were doing that interview, had a typewriter in the passenger seat of his car, and he told me he was writing his stories. So, Peter, if you're listening to this, we're, we're all looking forward to reading them, and, and thank you so much for your time. Our, our final guest is Josh Williams. Josh is a, a great bluegrass musician. He can kind of play any any instrument he puts his hands on. You might know him from Rhonda Vincent's band. You might know him from his own solo work. But I was encouraged to talk to Josh after I watched him do Brian Sutton's tribute to Tony Rice. Brian Sutton did like a three hour long tribute to Tony Rice on Facebook. And Josh got to do something really interesting. After Tony was unable to sing, Josh became Tony Rice's voice. He sang the songs that Tony Rice could not sing anymore. And it wasn't just musically that Tony meant something to Josh. As you're about to hear, Josh talks about his own sobriety journey and Tony's encouragement and help while they were on the road together. Here's my conversation with Josh Williams. Well, Josh, thanks so much for, for making the time, man. And I'm, and I'm, I'm just so sorry for your loss. Uh, thanks, Tom. I appreciate you asking me to do this, man. I really do. We met, we lost a good one, man. We lost a really, really good one. The best, in fact. So, um, When were you first aware of Tony Rice, like just aware that his music existed? I first became aware of Tony Rice uh, uh, initially through the music of J.D. Crow when I was very young. And I uh, heard that, you know, very famous 0044 album uh, with, with him and Ricky Skaggs and stuff. And, and it wasn't really until about two or maybe three years later, I was, gosh, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. The first time that I actually saw Tony perform, like I, I didn't see him live, but I saw him nonetheless. And, uh, uh, a friend of mine had bought an intimate lesson with Tony Rice, you know, the, the instructional yeah. thing that he did for homespun back in what, 87 or 88 or whatever. And when I saw that, I was just like, oh, my God, like, I've got to do this. When was the first time you guys met? Oh, um, the first time that I met Tony, the first time I saw him was probably, um, I would say, maybe 2000. No. It was even before that. It would have been 1995. 
I think, maybe 94. You're a kid. It was, yeah, no, it was uh, right at the very first, uh, it was the first year that he wasn't able to talk, was the first time I ever saw him in person. And that was at an IBMA award show. And I think the Tony Rice unit had won, uh, Tony won guitar player, and then the the unit had won uh, instrumental group of the year. And then I saw him that following summer or spring at Merle Fest, and he and Doc Watson did a uh, guitar workshop, which that's what they called it. It was just the two of them playing in a theater, you know. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly something you could just stop and let people ask questions that had never been over with because, I mean, there was probably three or 4,000 people in this auditorium. So, but uh, yeah, that was the first time. And I was up in the balcony, man, in the nosebleeds. I could just barely see him, but it was hilarious because, you know, there's, you know, a handful of signature licks that Tony came up with and did, and he did one of those licks and just the whole place erupted, man. It was just awesome, you know? So did you did you go backstage afterwards? Did you get to? to no, I didn't or? get to meet him. I actually didn't get to meet him until two thousand and two, I think. And it was very brief. It was a uh, um, backstage at the IBMA award show. So I didn't get to talk with him much. I didn't want to bother him either. You know, I was so scared to death that you know. I couldn't get my words to work, man. Like, like I couldn't think of anything because I was literally in front of this iconic figure that I had, you know, just looked up to so much. And I just, I had a hard time even really putting words together. I think I, I think I said something stupid, like, uh, you know, I do a lot of playing with JD like you used to do or something like that. And he's like, well, it's better you do it than I do it or whatever. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so like I, I didn't know how to take that. And I thought maybe I should have said that. I don't oh, know. I, I just, I didn't know what to say. You know, I, know, I was right? just so just tripping over my tongue, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but he was very gracious and, and very nice. And uh, I ended up getting to hang out with him for, about 10 or 15 minutes at that point. And then later on again, that evening, um, he and his daughter, India were there and, uh, they, they kind of snuck into Daryl Adkins room at the time. And, and I was able to follow suit and I was super psyched because, uh, I didn't get kicked out. Like once he got in there, there's some folks, you know, he kind of was like, Hey, you know, we need to get this down to a smaller bunch here. Cause, uh, you know, some people want to hang out without being bothered. And, and I just felt so cool because I didn't get kicked out. You know, I was like, yes. <laughs> so, so, so explain this to me. Like you get a call from Tony to play in the unit, but to play <clears throat> mandolin. So can, you, can yeah. you tell me that story of that phone call? Like how, how that all came about? So about uh, six months or so almost a year actually before all of that happened. Um, I was still working with Rhonda Vincent and we were at Graves mountain in Virginia playing and Tony was there and Rhonda just thought it would be really cool to have Tony come up and play a song with us, you know? And she said, so when he does, you just grab the mandolin and, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. You know? So, and we did exactly that. And somewhere around here, I've got a photo of that, but, uh, um, so that was the first time that he and I had ever played together and I was playing mandolin. 
So when I left Rhonda's band, uh, that following May was when he called me. Actually, I think it was more like March or April when he actually called me for the May performance. But he just said, uh, hey, you know, uh, I've got this show coming up. Would you want to come play mandolin on it? And I'm like, yeah, you know, of course I would. And so we went and did that. And then I ended up doing, I actually at first did more shows with uh, him and Peter Rowan. Um, just because I don't think the unit was playing a whole lot at that time. So I ended up doing, I don't know, about a handful of shows uh, with them. And then there was another unit show. And anyway, after about three or four different shows with the, with the unit, um, I just happened to kind of say, you know, hey, if for any reason you might want to do, you know, any vocal tunes, let me know. I know a bunch of your stuff, you know, and, and that's when he was like, really, what songs do you know? And I told him and he's like, well, why don't we do a few of those, you know, this, this evening and see how that goes. I was like, I'd be happy to. It was in Hiawassee, Georgia. We were down there playing. And uh, so the first set was all instrumental. And the second set uh, was the first time, I guess, that there had been any singing in any of the Tony Rice unit shows. But yeah, it was so it just kind of happened, man. He said, hey, would you come do this? I'm like, yeah. And, you know, then he just kept calling. Thankfully, of course, I made it made him very aware that if anything you want to do, I'm happy to do. You know what I mean? And uh, so, yeah, they just kept calling me. And then finally, after we played a uh, is probably three or four shows with with vocals on it that we had done. And we played the Birchmere and he called everybody after the show uh, back into one of the dressing rooms. And he said, hey, this is the unit that I want to uh be traveling is everybody okay with you know doing this and i'm of course you know i at that moment it was i was on cloud nine that my hero just asked me to be a part of something he was doing you know it must have been kind of bittersweet in some ways like you got to be tony's voice but tony couldn't sing you know it's a it's an interesting yeah. thing you know <clears throat> Well, and I never tried to be him, you know, yeah. I, I didn't try to sing everything exactly like he did because I, I, I knew that I didn't want him to feel like, you know, um, Tony was real big, big on, you know, you be you, you know, like the first time we ever played together, I didn't get to uh, really run over anything at all. You know, he said something about, yeah, we'll run over a couple of songs or something before we go on. And then it just ended up being a jam on Miles Davis's all blues instead of, you know, like yeah, anything e that we're going to do on No, stage. no problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's just, it was, it was very cool though. And I was extremely honored that he had the confidence in me and my ability to, to, you know, to let, let that happen. You know, I mean, he'd done a lot of shows with other people that could sing and I never understood why they just didn't do it. But I guess, you know, like I say, I'm just honored that he had the confidence in me to be able to do that. What was he like to tour with? <laughs> it was, uh, well, okay, so the, I'll preface it with this. Anytime anybody asks me, or asked me, at least back then, what's it like to play with Tony Rice, you know? And I would tell them all the same thing. It's exactly as cool as you think it is times 10, 
you know, but it was at times it was very loose, you know, and, and Tony would always laugh about that. And he would just jokingly say, Hey, it's a loose gig, but it really was like, we, uh, we all met at the place we were playing at, you know, a lot of times, uh, we didn't see each other until sound check or even till right before the show, you know, but I always had a phone call from Tony, uh, the day of the show, you know, to either check in or just, you know, ask if I had all the information I needed or if he needed any or whatever, you know, I would always get a phone call from him. Most of the time, uh, if Ricky Simpkins was on the show, he and I would always touch base, uh, you know, during the day as well. But yeah, a lot of the time it was just meet at the show, you know, and, and here we go, you know, half the time we do sound check and Wyatt would check Tony's guitar, mic. He, you know, Tony wouldn't even be there. There were several times when Tony didn't show up to like literally right before we're about to play, you know, of course, then he'd look at the promoter and be like, you know, I'm going to need a couple of minutes and stuff. (laughs) And, you know, most of the time people were okay with that, but every once in a while you run into a place where they're like, you know, what in the world? Why, you know, he needs to be here earlier. And I'm just like, Hey man, he's Tony Rice, you know, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) So but yeah, it, it got to be pretty loose. How did that wrap up? Like how did your time in the unit wrap up? Um, honestly, like, uh, the saddest, the saddest thing for me is that it didn't really end. It just stopped. If that makes sense. Right. Like, uh, yeah. the, the last, uh, unit performance, um, well, I guess the last two unit performances we did without Tony. Um, and, you know, we didn't even know that Tony wasn't going to make it. But I knew I knew then that, you know, Tony was having a hard time because he wasn't playing the way that he used to. He wasn't playing the way that he wanted to. Um, and I could tell that was bothering him. The way that he wanted to has been um, coming up a lot like that. He... He knew exactly yeah. what he wanted to sound like. And when he couldn't, yeah. it was so hard for him, you know? Yeah, it really was. And and I think I think obviously what happened was, you know, Tony's mentality was, you know, if I can't play the way that I want to, then I'm not going to play. But I tried several times to just get him to, you know, just come out and play rhythm on something. And finally, we, we did get him to do – uh uh, in 2013, we were able to do a reunion of the Bluegrass Album Band that I got to be a part of, and um, he did show up for that, and he had a really hard time, but his rhythm was there, man. I mean, his solos, you could tell he was struggling, he was hurting. You know, when when the when his radial nerve started going uh that was really hard on him because he was having like, I was watching him do all kinds of stuff before the shows when we were playing, like he would, uh, you know, put uh fiddle rosin on his finger and his thumb in order to help hold his pick. Wow. And, and because he didn't have the, the strength to be able to like squeeze it. And, and especially when he was do, trying to play an upstroke, it was, uh, it was difficult for him. So that's that's kind of what he used as a little bit of a you know prevent preventing from dropping the pick which he could have done very very often because of the you know not being able to push 
those two together very hard. And I think that's ultimately what kept him, you know, from, from playing anymore. It was just he, you know, was having such a hard time with that. And, you know, he'd had arthritis for years. Uh, what the, one of the last phone conversations that he and I had, he told me uh, that he hadn't had the guitar out of the case in a year and a half. Oh, my God. And that was kind of my response was, oh, my God, why, you know, why? And uh, he said, what was it he said? Uh, I just can't do it or something like that. And I said, so you don't have any calluses or anything anymore then? And he said, uh, I wore myself out early. And <clears throat> Tony, I, I had the utmost respect for the man. I mean, I, I, I doubt there's anybody, you know, I know a lot of people respected him, but I don't know that anybody respected him any more than I did. I think we all just put him at the top, you know, the, but you know, there was it, like, if I could have reached through the phone, you know, I'd have just like shook him. <laughs> Cause I was like, you know, that sounds like uh, an excuse to me, but I think the reality of it was, was that he, he was hurting when he would play. And for the fact that he couldn't sound the way that he was used to sounding or the way that he wanted to sound, then he just didn't want to play. Josh, you only talk about this as much as you want, but I know you had a relationship with Tony outside of music too, you know, with regards to, yeah. your, to your sobriety. Again, as much as you want mm -hmm. to. Could you, could you talk to me a little bit about that? So, uh, I looked up to a lot of... Uh, a lot of people like I'll, I'll go back to my to my really young ages here uh, like when i first started going to festivals and and like everybody that i looked up to smoked including my own father um and that was just like every single person that i looked up to did that and that was just something that i grew up thinking they did that i want to do that you know and as I got older, I realized that, uh, and my dad had warned me many times, uh, that he was afraid that I would have an addictive personality and turns out that I did. And when I got old enough, uh, of course, you know, I, I, I started, you know, where everybody else starts, you know, with a little bit of drinking and a little bit of pot and then just went on from there, you know, and, and, uh, by the time that I was playing with Tony, um, Actually, about six months into being in Tony's band, I got addicted to methamphetamines. And, man, that that became just a quick spiral downward for me. And, uh, uh, you know, there's actually, you can find the shows, too, on, on YouTube, uh, where, you know, some of them I'm just almost as chiseled looking as Tony is. You know, I'm just, I've gotten down to probably being six foot four, I was probably 130 pounds oh and, uh, yeah, it was bad. And luckily, you know, I was able to hit that bottom, uh, and I didn't have any law trouble. I didn't, you know, I wasn't ordered by a judge to go to, uh, any kind of a drug court or, uh, rehab, but I checked myself into a rehab just because i I knew I couldn't stop and I, and it took me several years to, to reach that point. But when I finally did, um, that's when Tony started reaching out to me about his past. And, uh, 
you know, he uh, had been sober since May 31st of 2001. And so this is uh, my, my sobriety date initially was uh, uh, April 5th of 2010. And when I got out of rehab, uh, he was one of the first people to call and check on me. And he even offered to sponsor me while I, while we were on the road together and everything. And, and man, had I not, had I not been working with him when all that happened, I don't know that I would have stayed sober or even be alive now, but it was just, you know, I mean, you look up to people that like to party, you know, and you think I want to have a good time with these guys, you know, I mean, is just no way of knowing if you're going to have a hard time not doing it, you know, or whatever. You don't realize that until you're in it, you know, and, yeah. and that's just where I was. I had the, the, I, I it wasn't a party for me anymore. You know, like uh, I had already years before that reached the point where everybody's like, he parties too much. Yeah. But like for me, it just, I, it wasn't enough. I couldn't do enough, but, um, you know, it's funny in a lot of ways, I'm grateful I got on that stuff because it's what handed my ass to me. And I think had that not happened, you know, uh, you know, it could have been something else or it could have been, uh, you know, maybe not sober now, or maybe not even alive now, you know, but, but Tony was such, man, I looked up to him as much as my, I did my own dad. In fact, when my dad passed away in, in 2017, um, I had sent Tony, uh, a message. My dad and Tony had this weird thing because my dad's name was Tony as well. And so they had this, I thought it was ridiculous, but the two of them thought it was the funniest thing in the world when they looked at each other and said, hi, Tony, hi, Tony, you know, and all this kind of just, in fact, uh, Tony had signed a copy of the book for my dad and, uh, I have to find it somewhere because it just has the funniest little thing in there that he wrote about it, you know, about both of them being Tony and how funny they thought that was. But, uh, (laughs) when I, when I got that, uh, when my dad passed away and I sent Tony that message immediately, I got a a text back in all caps and it said, Josh, are you there? And I said, you know, I typed back, yes, I'm here. And then my phone rang and he just, even though it was through the phone and I hadn't seen him in, you know, a long time, he just showered me with love, man. I mean, Tony, that's just what Tony was about. He was just love. He was the sweetest soul, you know, and he was, he was very, he had a big heart, man. He had a big heart and, and, very sensitive too. that a lot of people don't realize, you know, it wasn't that, um, it was an ego. He was just extremely sensitive, you know, and, and, uh, he just had so much love for everybody, man. And he just was really, gosh, I think we talked and, and at that time his voice was still, you know, he would get to where after about, well, by the end of a show, which was usually 90 minutes or something like that, by the end of the show, he would, you know, what little bit of the voice he had anyway would be, you know, he just wouldn't be able to talk anymore. It'd, it'd almost be a dead whisper by that point. And we talked for probably two hours on the phone and 
In fact, I even told him, I was like, T, I, I realize your voice is probably tired at this point. I appreciate you calling. You don't have to stay on the phone with me. And he said, nonsense. He said, I've got nothing to do but talk to you. And I said, okay. You know, and it just meant the world to me, man. Yeah, you know, man, that's just the kind of guy he was. You know, and like, and uh, one word that keeps on coming up around him was unknowable. You know what I mean? Like that he, you know, he would kind of dash off after the gig and drive all night by himself and you wouldn't hear from him for, you know, and, but there's, there's the thing that keeps on coming up is even though he was unknowable, he still had a tremendous amount of compassion in his heart, especially for people who were trying, you know, for struggling who were. Oh yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. He, he was, he was a noble. That's funny that you say that because it, he, he, uh, he didn't open up to many people. Um, and I think a lot of that stemmed also from his voice because he was very self-conscious about that. And, you know, I mean, after trying to talk like that for, you know, the length of a show, I mean, it literally had his voice, his throat hurting, you know, so, uh, he did, he was, you know, bad about, you know, the very last note, you know, about two seconds after the last note ends on the end of the show, you hear his car start up, you know, and, <laughs> and in a lot of ways he was like that, but there was times when he wasn't too, you know, this, it depended on where we were, who on was at the show. And there was times, man, that we were only supposed to play like, 45 55 minutes or something like that 75 minutes and dude we would play for two and a half hours sometimes you know it's just like some nights he just wanted to so bad he didn't want to stop and then other nights he was just you know like i can't i just can't do it it's hurting too bad or whatever you know so well, that, it was me, no go was, ahead well let me let me ask you the, the kind of the three ending questions that i've been asking everybody on this thing. And first one is, what was he like? <laughs> oh, man. He was so, so many different things. Like, he was, he was compassionate, yet unknowable. You know, he was, he was loving, yet, you know, untangible, untouchable. He was, um, there was such a mystique about him. It was just a mysterious thing. And I, I think that contributed to part of his stardom, you know, especially there towards the end. It was like, you know, the man, the myth, you know, Tony Rice, you know, is he here? Is he not here? You know, um, but all in all, the Tony that I knew was love. He was just, love and it didn't matter if he had if it had been two days two years since he'd seen you last or even talked to you last you know the first thing that he would do if he saw you was give you just the sweetest hug you know because he just was loved man he just i don't really know how else to say it you know he was just love what made his playing so special um well first off nobody had ever done what he did you know like he took 
what, you know, uh, in the beginning, you know, there was what Doc Watson and Clarence White, you know, and then, you know, it's funny to hear him early on sound just like Clarence White, like a lot of other people do now sound just like Tony Rice. And, um, but even he had that mentor that he looked up to, you know, but it was, it was not until he went back to uh, California and was playing with Grisman and then playing also with, with, uh, I think John Carlini had a lot to do with uh, the learning of the jazz and, and the finding of his own voice. So, um, you know, hearing, hearing him come out after that time is the Tony that we know. And uh, there was a, fire there was an excitement there was a command over the stuff that he did and first off his playing was impeccable his tone was amazing you know he could he could play fast he could play slow but it was the material that he played or wrote that just nobody could believe it you know i mean because a lot of the stuff that you're hearing is just jazz oriented stuff you know i mean there's like miles davis solos or uh you know john coltrane solos but on a guitar you know it's not it's not like uh you know playing through one whole breath in like 20 notes this was you know every single note played with a plectrum just like a machine gun you know and I think that was just something that nobody had ever heard before. And well, nobody could do either. I'll, I'll give you my last question then. Um, okay. So in, in your mind, in, in your mind's eye, when you picture Tony Rice, uh, paint me a picture of what you see. Tell me what you see when you picture Tony Rice. Uh, I see him playing. I see him on stage performing. I see him with his glasses down over his nose. So obviously I'm seeing the Tony that I personally knew, you know, and, but I see him in a time that he was well, you know, I see him like when I first started working with him, man, like he, he got like just each year after year after year, he was just losing more weight. And just like, every time you go to hug him, he just, I'd get more scared every time I did, you know, and, and, but I see him, I see him because, so (laughs) there was this thing that Tony would do and he would be so serious about his playing and he'd almost look like he's angry, you know, until he'd make eye contact with you. And then literally his whole face would light up. And I mean, literally light up. Like I can't explain it other than that. It was just, from like this complete, just absolute, uh, you know, so concentrating so hard, he's almost angry at it, feeling it, you know, and then making eye contact with you and just everything just completely turning the, the other way, you know. I mean, I saw that look so many times, and that's just, that's what I'll forever see. In fact, I used to have a picture, <clears throat> I probably still got it somewhere, but, there was a photo that somebody had taken at um, 
uh, bluegrass first class in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was a unit performance and he and I were standing right beside each other. And I don't know what it was, but we were cracking up and he may have just done that or something and made me laugh. Cause that's what it, cause I would just look at him and then usually be like, man, you go from, from pissed to hilarious, you know, in like in just a matter of a second. And, but yeah, I, I just see him doing that all the time. I can still see it just as plain as day. This is just as much as I can see you. I can see him. I mean, just having that, just that almost, you know, frowned scowl on his face, you know, and then it just goes immediately to this bright smile and, and where his eyes would squint. He was just, he was the best man. He was the best. Man, thank you so much. I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for your time today. Well, man, thanks for doing it. I'll bet engineer is kind enough to let me be his guest. Y'all ever met my hero, Tony Rice? Well, thank you so much to Josh Williams for his time. Thanks so much to Josh Williams, especially for telling that story, a very personal story offstage about what Tony Rice meant to him. I'm incredibly grateful for that and grateful for your trust there, Josh. And, and, and uh, thank you so much. And, and man, just thanks. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to be talking to artists who were influenced by Tony Rice. Chris Thiele, Chris Eldridge, Molly Tuttle, and Brian Sutton. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Reitenauer Jacobs, with help, as always, from the entire BGS team, including producer Chris Jacobs, associate editor Justin Hiltner, managing editor Craig Shelburne, and all of the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for roots culture redefined. You can discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. The show was mixed by Stephanie Coleman and Mike Laval. Transcription by Rob McLaren. Our theme song is Toy Heart by Bill Monroe performed by Chris Eldridge and Kristen Andreessen. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with folks like Del McCurry, Alice Gerard, and Jesse McReynolds in our podcast feed. Click subscribe and please tell any friends of yours that are into bluegrass music. We'll see you next week. Stay safe. Later on. <laughs>